We are on the final leg for Hebrews, right? In fact, maybe the final pinky toe, okay? My original plan was that we'd finish Hebrews today, but I thought, I haven't been up for a little while and I thought, I need to do something that looks like I've been doing some work. So I'm going to preach this week and next week. And this is a passage I've been keen to preach uh, most of the time that we've been going through Hebrews. I've, I've always, I've read it and I've just thought, this is really cool. So we're going to have a look at it today. And then next week, we're going to finish with the doxology. And for all those mathematicians out there, next week is message number 50 in Hebrews. And that's where we finish. And so if you're a neat Nick, you're, just, you're going to be really happy with that. All right, that's going to be a nice place to finish. So today, what we're looking at is we're looking at Jesus' sacrifice and sustenance. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Hebrews 13. <coughs> Excuse me, it'll be on the screen also. And we're going to start at verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. So I'm, I'm just going to make a few comments as we go through. What's he saying? Love each other. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. What's he saying? He's saying love strangers. Love at the risk to your own welfare. I heard recently that... Um, you don't know what it's like to carry someone else's burdens. Maybe I should put that better. You're not carrying someone else's burdens until it impinges upon your lifestyle. All right? And the scriptures are quite clear about the fact that you need to carry other people's burdens. Um, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honour among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. You know what he's saying? Love your marriage partner. Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. So he's saying don't love money. Now, you know what's super, what I love about this instruction not to love money is a gospel statement comes out of it. A gospel statement is how does God help you to not love money, all right? And the way that God helps you to not love money is the back end of verse 5 there. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's why you don't need money. Money's not that important. All right? And this is what Diff preached on this a little while ago. Money's not that important. What's far better than money is having God with you who will always look after you and always provide for you what you need. So we can confidently say, verse 6, the Lord is my helper. That is a, isn't that just a rich phrase? God is my helper. So when you get into this week, and it all starts turning to rubbish, or even it's all going really well, because sometimes it can all go really well, and you can freak out, and you can go, oh, I don't know what's going to happen now. In whatever situation, imagine if the, the constant refrain in your head and in your heart was, God is my helper. Now, the Holy Spirit, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the helper, and he lives inside of those who love, who love God. And so God is constantly helping you. Now, a lot of times people cry out to God and they go, you're not doing anything. Well, he is, you just can't see it because often what happens for us is we get really blinded by suffering. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. It doesn't say don't fear, it's like when God is my helper and I live in that reality, I won't fear. When God is my helper and I live in that reality and I know that he'll never leave me or forsake me, I don't need to love money. I just don't need to. And it's almost like, it's not grit your teeth obedience, it's just like, well, I can just let it go. I cannot be a control freak when it comes to money. 
Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he's really saying, look, follow your leaders as they follow Christ. Verse 9, and this is where we're going to focus today, 9 to 16. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those who devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the holy high priests as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his names. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. There's three things I want to focus on today on the whole area of Jesus being both our sacrifice and our sustenance. The first point is this, you need strength on the inside. The second is this, internal strength is not built with temporal things. And the last thing I'm going to address is that internally strong people are not brought undone by temporal things. If you go back to the start of Hebrews 13, you see these things. You see, let brotherly love continue. You see, show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison. Let marriage Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Imitate your leader's faith. There's all these instructions to do things, and you're going to need some strength to do them, right? Amen? You're not going to be able to get that done unless you're strong. And the kind of strength that we're actually talking about here is we're talking about internal strength. Because it takes risk, it takes strength to risk yourself with strangers. It takes strength to move in a direction where you could get in trouble because you're identifying yourself with uh, prisoners. It takes strength in your marriage when your marriage is going down the toilet. It takes strength to stay in there. It takes strength to run away from the promises of money. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, you need strength on the inside. And this is the scripture in verse 9 of Hebrews 13. Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened. <coughs> Excuse me. The part of you that needs strengthening is not your body, ultimately. The ultimate part that needs strengthening is your heart. And the heart is the seat of the emotions, the will, and the cognition, the thinking. And God knows that you actually need to be very strong in that sense. This is the thinking, the feeling, the willing, the hoping, the fearing, the trusting, the longing, the raging, the grieving, and the rejoicing part of you that you can't see. God is really passionate about you being really super tough on the inside. Uh, My boys went to rugby yesterday and uh, while I was away, some of them had some situations happen in rugby and they kind of weren't that strong. And since I've been back, I've been working with one of them and I've just been saying, I want you to be strong. I want you to be strong when you play rugby. It's okay if you get hurt, but I want you to be strong when you play rugby. And it's not just about physical strength for him, it's about emotional strength, it's about the internal strength of his heart. You see, this is not measured like you'd measure cholesterol or blood pressure or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, BMIs, 
You, it, you can't measure this stuff in that way because it's not a physical strength. And I would ask you today, do you want to be internally strong? You know, I think a lot of you are, but do you want to be stronger? Because the scripture here says it's good to be strengthened. Amen? So I would submit to you today, strive to be stronger. Strive to be stronger. And that's what this section is about today, is how, how strength is built in the heart. And I'd say to you, and this is a, if, if you're someone here today and you just go, I'd like to be stronger on the inside. Anyone here like that? That's what God's doing. God's moving in the direction of building strength in you. So if you, this is kind of like, you know, sometimes you pray things and you go, I don't know whether God's going to do what I want. If you pray something that he says he's on a mission to do, it's a guarantee, all right? Because he's the strongest being in the universe. It's going to happen, all right? You've just got to get moving in that direction. There's a beautiful prayer that Paul prays in Ephesians 3, verse 14 to 19 that speaks about this internal strength. We spent a bit of time meditating on this at our uh, project leadership meeting Thursday night. This is, in, I mean, you could probably meditate on this for the rest of your life. I mean, that's, that's the extent of the riches in this prayer. Listen to this. <coughs> I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is known, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Anyone say amen to that? Yeah, I do. I just go, I want to be strong. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You know what? You know, I've always found fascinating in this uh, scripture is that you're actually not going to be able to comprehend the extent of God's love for you unless he gives you strength to do so. So if you're someone here today and you don't belong to Jesus and you're not part of his family, one of the things you could say is, God, give me the strength to understand the immensity of your love for me. Because it's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. So God's interested in your internal strength and he's working to build it. There's another scripture in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 16 says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And anyone who's a little bit older knows that things just stop, start to stop working, right? You say, well, that's not meant to happen. But it does. And so what you've actually got is you've got this with Paul. You've got this ironing going on where his body's breaking down, but internally he's getting stronger and stronger. And a lot of you know exactly what I'm talking about. One of the things my boys love to do, and it happened at the dinner table the other night, is they love to they say, is it opposite day to day? <laughs> All right? And it's like... That gives you the opportunity to say to someone, I hate you, without actually meaning it. Because if it's opposite day, it actually means I love you, all right? And they get to say all these weird things to each other. I wonder <coughs> if, uh, what it would look like if God made today opposite day when it comes to strength, right? In terms of that 2 Corinthians 4 passage. I wonder if everyone came to church today and the way you looked on the outside actually correlated to the level of strength that you had internally. I wonder whether you'd be a dweeb or a bodybuilder. You get what I'm saying? Wouldn't that be interesting? Because, uh, I mean, the scriptures are clear that God looks uh, at the heart, not at the outward appearance, doesn't he? That happened in the Old Testament when uh, Samuel was selecting David to be king. Uh, David's dad didn't even basically 
stump him up as an option for being king. And Samuel said, where, where is he? You know? And, um, and David's dad said, oh, he's, he's out looking after the sheep. We'll go and get him because he's a bit ordinary. We didn't think he was that good. Imagine that. Imagine that today. Now, I, you know, the interesting thing is, you know, if I said, who here thinks they'd be a little bit tanky in terms of muscles? Some of the women go, I don't want to be tanky, all right? But you get what I'm saying. You know, probably some of you self-effacing, humble people would just go, I'm not that strong, you know? But the interesting thing is that people who say I'm not that strong often are some of the strongest people around, all right? And sometimes I think it's the people, <coughs> excuse me, who, um, who observe your strength that have a clearer picture of your strength than you actually do. So that's the first thing, you need internal strength. Number two, internal strength is not built with temporal things. Let me read this again. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by what? By what? By grace. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. Now the writer of Hebrews doesn't specify it, but there's obviously some weird religious kind of food regimen going on there where people think you can actually strengthen your internal non-physical part by the kind of foods that you actually eat. And when you look at our society, we're probably not that dissimilar to that notion. I mean, if you look at people who are um, uh, anorexic or bulimic, they've got eating disorders, it appears that there's some kind of connection to their non-physical part in the way that they actually do their eating patterns. Um, But then you can even get into things like... um, No offence if this is you, right? But you can get into things like vegetarianism in an extreme way. Extreme vegetarian, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? Various kinds of abstinence. Uh, You've got organic diets, fat-free diets, sugar-free diets, caffeine-free, chemical-free foods. Now, listen, there's nothing in and of themselves that's wrong, but sometimes those things can reach a point in people's lives that goes beyond just a physical thing, right? And it becomes something they actually think, the way that I'm actually handling this means that I actually believe a little bit that uh, the way I'm handling the food is actually going to minister to the non-physical part of me. Now, if you're on one of those diets, don't go and write a blog about it after this, right? I'm not saying they're bad, okay? I'm just saying that what you eat doesn't actually strengthen your heart. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It doesn't matter. So if you're someone, I'll probably pick a couple of you up in this net, right? If you're someone who goes, I just need to have a coffee and then I'll be okay. Now, coffees are nice and I drink a lot of coffee. But if you rely on coffee to feel good internally in the non-physical part of you, you've actually taken food to a level that you think it actually strengthens your heart. Does that make sense? If you say... I've just got to get home and sit down and have a beer. Maybe beer's gotten to the point where that food thing is actually starting to feed in your mind into uh, the strength of heart. If you're a... um, I mean, they talk on the TV quite a bit about recipes for comfort food, right? I mean, that's kind of stepping over over that line a little bit, isn't it? And that's kind of saying, when I feel like crap, if I eat some nice food, I'll feel better. And, and it's not that uncommon. I mean, people talk about food therapy and the fact that when people are down and they're really struggling, what do they do? Well, a lot of people go to the fridge and they eat. And what are they doing? Well, I think a lot of the time what they're doing is they're strengthening the non-physical part of them by a physical item food. Does it make sense? And probably there would be a few of us that would probably do that. 
The writer of Hebrews is clear, if you look up there, that the non-physical part of you doesn't actually get nourished by food. It gets nourished by grace. And then he goes on to say exactly what this is. And this was a little bit, it kind of, I almost pulled the brain muscle trying to work this out because it was a little bit complex at the time when I first started, but I think I've, I've pretty, pretty well got it sorted as much as I can. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's verse 10 and 11. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. All right. Let me explain this to you really quick. What the altar that the writer of Hebrews is talking about is actually the cross of Jesus Christ, okay? His sacrifice on the cross. So what you've got in the Old Testament in Leviticus 16 is you've got this thing called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was uh, a day, and I really encourage you to go and read it because you'll see a lot of Jesus in Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement was a day, one day a year, where the high priest would go in and offer sacrifices and uh, take the blood of the animals into the most holy place in the temple to cover the people's sins. So what actually happened is the first thing he would do is he would slaughter a bull, and that would be for his own sins, and then he would slaughter a goat, and the goat would be for the sins of all the people of Israel. Okay? And two things would happen. He would take the blood into the holy places of the animal, and then the carcass of the animal would actually be taken outside the camp and dumped outside the camp and completely burned. Now... It was only really the Day of Atonement and the sin offering where the, uh, the bodies of the animals were burned. Most other offerings, the priests could actually, and the tribe of Levi could actually eat of the offerings once they'd been offered to God. But this was a unique day in the sense that there was nothing tangible that anyone could actually eat on this day. So it raises the question, what were they eating? So if you look at this verse on the screen here, He's saying, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. And the people that he's talking about is the Jews. He's saying the Jews that serve in the temple, because they're not Christians, they don't get to eat from the altar of Jesus, which is the altar of him dying on the cross outside the camp in the same way to the the Day of Atonement. And then he goes on to say, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now, let me ask you this. What do you think the people, on the Day of Atonement, what do you think the people ate? Now, this is kind of weird terminology, right? Because we're not talking about something physical. Yeah. They ate forgiveness on the Day of Atonement, didn't they? And they ate hope, didn't they? Because they went there with all of their sins on them, and by the end of that day, all of their sins were off them. They were taken off them. And so no one ate the carcasses of the animals. It's almost like the sacrifice that was given, or the sacrifice of those animals actually totally consumed the animals themselves. And you can kind of see that a little bit with Jesus being crucified outside the camp. He was crucified outside the city. He was crucified outside the Jewish camp and his body was almost completely consumed by the wrath and the judgment that God poured out upon people's sins that were inside of him. And so you can see that this is what's actually happening. And the writer of Hebrews is saying the grace that you need to eat is the grace of forgiveness and hope and the grace of God that pours out from the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. You can see this 
Same motif in Leviticus 16, as I said, and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. Jesus was killed outside the camp and pretty much completely consumed as a, as a sacrifice and as an offering for the stuff that you've done wrong. And he did it willingly. There's no arm twisting. He did it willingly. And now you've got to in forgiveness. So when you feel like a failure, when you feel discouraged and hopeless and dirty, don't turn to food. Because it won't strengthen you internally. You need to go to Jesus. And you know, the really interesting thing is when we feel like failures and we feel disgusting and dirty, we always find somewhere to go to help us to feel better in our hearts. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go anywhere else. The only place you need to go is you just need to get to Jesus. We have an altar and there's food on this altar, but the food's not physical food. The food is grace, which is God's riches and his gifts and his generosity toward you. And the only way that you actually get that gift of grace is by Jesus dying on the cross. The scriptures say that all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Amen? That's how you, so Jesus does it and he signs the infinite check pretty much for everyone. And so everything comes on board. It's like, this is a nice idea. I mean, by Wednesday this week, we're hoping to get a draft constitution for the project, right? But it's not going to be signed off on, on Wednesday. It's like future oriented. But when Jesus actually dies on the cross, it gets signed. The check gets signed and every promise and every goodness that God wants to pour out toward you actually gets activated at that point. Someone should probably cheer. True? This is amazing. So I ask you, how do you eat grace? That sounds really weird, doesn't it? I mean, if you're not following Jesus today and you're here and you're hearing me saying we need to eat grace and it's a non-physical thing, you're probably just going, oh, that's weird. How do you do it? And I'm going to give you, just, I'll give you 15 seconds. Have a think about it. How do you think, if the thing that God wants you to feed on to nourish your heart is his grace, how do you think you eat it? I'll give you 15 seconds to think about it. Grace is the only way that you're going to survive. God's goodness and his kindness to you, his forgiveness of you, the hope that he brings through the cross, that's the only way that you're going to survive. Do you believe that? It's it's the only way. There isn't any other sustenance for your heart other than God's goodness and his gifts and his gracious love toward you that comes through the cross. So how do you eat it? Well... You could seek his forgiveness, couldn't you? And like do it regularly. Whenever you blow it, you just go, well, I just need another feed right now. I've just gone from being well-fed to being malnourished. 
So let's go back and let's just ask him to forgive me and cleanse me and fix me up. Well, here's another one. You could bank on his promises, couldn't you? Instead of the false promises of temptation, you could say, no, I trust Jesus. I trust that he's going to come through for me, not that food or sex or whatever it is is going to come through for me. I trust that he's going to come through for me rather than coffee. I trust him that those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength and I don't need caffeine. I trust him that I could even fast and go without food to learn that everyone... I mean, this is what God says in the Old Testament to the people of Israel. He said, I led you in the desert so that you'd learn that every man lives on the word of God and not by bread. You might fast sometimes, you just go, the only thing that I need for these three days or two days or one day is Jesus. He will nourish me on the inside. You could feed on grace by not trying to pay God back, right? I think we probably do that more than what we think. I think God's been really good to me. I've got to kind of pay him back in, re- in return. Honestly, if, you, if you're sitting here today and you just think, I have got a big debt with God, get a bigger one, all right? Because that's how he likes it to work. He wants to be the one who's just giving all the time. He's not really interested in you giving back to him, all right? He doesn't want you to serve him and he wants you to be a good kid of his, but he's not really interested that much in your contribution in terms of actually paying back a debt. I think it was John Piper actually said that the way you glorify a mountain spring is you drink from it, not carry a bucket up from the town water and pour it on top of the spring, right? God's a mountain spring. So you just get your face into it and you drink it and you rack up the biggest debt that you can. What about this one? I think you can eat grace actually by recognising you're needy. And you just need him all the time. That's what he wants. He doesn't want a little human running around just feeling pretty happy with themselves and being able to sort their life out and then sometimes just going, oh, it's terrible, it's overwhelming, I need you now, God. All right? And it's like, oh, you can sit down now, I'm good for the next two weeks. All right? That's not eating grace. Exodus 34, verse 6 to 7 is where God reveals himself to Moses and he says this about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping love, I mean, King James Version says, keeping mercy for thousands. He's got a pantry full of help for you. And it comes through the cross. And you better just get into that pantry, like my boys do. All right? Again, it's like, we, it's like food is entertainment in my house. All right? It's not about sustenance. It's like, we've got nothing to do. Let's eat. God wants us to be like that. Number three. Actually, before number three, I read through these scriptures. 147.11 of Psalm. Psalms, but the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. Beautiful scriptures about depending upon God. And that was the one I just read out of Exodus 34. Here's the last bit. That's where we finish. Internally strong people are not brought undone by temporal things. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his his name. In uh, the first century, what you had, let me give you a really quick history lesson. You had the Roman imperial cult. A lot of the Caesars would actually become deified at some point in time, either in their life or after they died. And there was a rule, all right? Because some of you probably read Galatians and you're wondering why there's a whole bunch of dudes kicking around saying that all the fellas need to get circumcised, right? Because that's a really painful thing. 
But here's the thing, you've got in the book, you've got, this, uh, you've got these people running around doing it, and you're just kind of going, why are they saying that? Why are they saying that all these dudes have actually got to, got to get circumcised? All right? Anyway, the bottom line was, here's what was actually happening in the book of Galatians. The Jews and the Roman imperial cult were the only religions that were allowed to meet on a weekly basis. All right? So what the Christians, it appears, were actually doing is they were saying, if we get circumcised and we look like Jews, then we're going to be able to meet weekly without getting into trouble with the Romans. All right? And so what they actually did is they set up this quite elaborate argument as to why Christians need to get circumcised theologically so that they could actually not get in trouble by the Romans. And so it looks like in the first century what you've got is you've got this kind of thing going on in some groups of Christendom who are just going, we don't want to cop the treatment, so we're going to find some sneaky way to kind of fit in with what's going on in the existing establishment so we don't get a raw, get a raw deal from the Romans and from, from the Jews. All right? And it appears that what's actually happening here in Hebrews 13 is you've actually got um, the writer of Hebrews saying, guys, don't stay there. Jesus didn't stay in the camp of Judaism. He didn't stay where it was comfortable. He went outside it. And you need to go outside with Jesus. And so I think probably you're able to hopefully make some connections in your mind to your own life. Because the inclination and the temptation is let's stay comfortable. Now, it's a very Christian society in America, right? We went to the uh, Lincoln Memorial and standing at the front of the Lincoln Memorial is a street preacher standing there absolutely belting it out. Now, do I think street preaching is an effective evangelistic mode? Not really. And no one was listening. Do I admire the guy for having some guts to stand up and talk about Jesus when there's lots and lots of people around? Yeah, I do. On the way to the airport in Philly on the uh, Saturday... Couldn't believe it. We went past, it was just a racket outside and what had happened is a bunch of Negro women had basically set up a big PA system on the sidewalk, right? And one of the, it was hilarious, one of the, one of the Negro women was preaching up a storm at full volume, like you'd, you'd probably hear it 150 metres away. And one of the other women sitting in a chair there, was probably five of them, she's sitting there going, hey man, that's great, you know, just all that kind of Negro kind of thing. Now, there's a sense in which they're out there. And you might go, that's not what God's calling me to, street preaching. But God is calling you to be in the discomfort zone, isn't he? And that's really what it's saying here is don't stay in the camp because Jesus didn't stay in the camp. And uh, I'd submit to you that maybe there might be some areas in your life where you kind of go, I know that if I just take that extra step forward in bearing testimony to Jesus, I'm going to cop a bit of abuse. And the writer of Hebrews in the original language there kind of gives the impression it's not just that you'll get reproach, but you get Jesus' reproach. You get the bad treatment that was done to him will actually get done to you, will be done to you. But you know the interesting thing, and this is the thing that's kind of always stood out to me about this, this section. A lot of times I reckon we can sit around and we can kind of go, I just want to stay comfortable and I'm asking Jesus to come and meet me in my comfort. Now Jesus isn't in the comfort most of the time, I don't think. Like, if you look at this scripture, it's like, if you want to go to where Jesus is, you need to be out in the uncomfort or in the discomfort zone. True? And it's like, I just think God specialises out there. You take the risk, you get outside the safe little camp. See, if you look at this scripture here, and this is where I'm going to close the message here, you see the reason in verse 14 for why you can go out of the camp 
It's because you've got a city that's coming that's way, way, way better. That's why temporal things don't matter because the thing that's coming for you, if you love Jesus, is far, far better. Uh, when I was in Philly, there was one lady in the course who was an Australian lady and um, we hadn't heard any Australians for a while and we kind of heard her voice when we were in class and we just thought she's got to be Australian. But see, she hadn't been in Australia for a long time and so I was talking with her over lunch and she sat there smiling at me and then started laughing at me and I'm just going, well, this is weird. And uh, I kind of paused and you know what she said? She goes, it's just been so long since I've heard an Australian accent that I just love it. And then on the plane, those of you who have been overseas have heard this on the plane, but on the plane on the way home we got... We got, closer to, um, to, we got close to Brisbane and the uh, captain came on and he announced, if you're on holidays, I hope you enjoy your time in Australia. And he said this, he said, if you're from Australia, welcome home. And I want to get a welcome home one day. True? And it's going to be like getting on a plane of Australians when you haven't heard any Australians for two weeks and you hear the announcer come over and say, how are you all going? <laughs> And you haven't heard it, like you just go, man, that, that's weird, you know, but it's home. And then the captain says, welcome home. And you're home. And for those who love him, one day he's going to say to you, welcome home. And it's going to be like coming home from a foreign country. And it's like everything's going to be in your accent and it's going to be good. And it'll just feel right. <laughs> You know, when you get home and you just kind of go, I don't have to translate fair income. I don't have to worry about Americans getting offended when you hack on them. All right? I just, it's like, I'm just going to get, and it's going to be okay and it's going to be right. Everything's going to be right. That's what's coming. And that's why you can go out and you can take a bit of abuse that was given to Jesus for his sake. So that people might love him and so that he might love people in a really special way.